1972, I don't want to say it was the year I was born, but it was. In 1972, at the American Academy for the Advancement of Sciences, a man was getting ready to give a speech. His name was Edward Norton Lorenz, and he could not think of a name for his speech. But a friend suggested to him, what about the title, Does the Flap of a Butterfly's Wings in Brazil Set Off a Tornado in Texas? And what his speech would do, it would share the research that he started 11 years earlier. In 1961, he was doing a meteorological model on a computer. And remember back then, the power that's in your iPhone had to be in two rooms. So this huge computer that he was trying to do meteorological modeling on, he wanted to take a shortcut. And he said, instead of putting in this initial input that's to the sixth decimal place, I'm just going to put it into the third decimal place. And to his surprise, the entire meteorological model changed. One teeny tiny change in the input over here made a massive difference over here. A small thing over here magnified way to here. Does the flap of a butterfly's wings set off a tornado in Texas? Well, it seems like it very well could be. And, of course, you're all familiar now with the butterfly effect. It was that first. He, well, he wasn't the first to look at it. French scientists and physicists in the late 1800s, early 1900s had started this phenomenon or talking about it, but it kind of got popularized after this speech. We here for the last three weeks have been talking about dreaming big, and right we have been. And this last weekend, World Mandate, Worship God, Change the World. We're dreaming big about what God wants to do in the world. And now we turn the corner, dream big, think small. And today we turn the corner to say paradoxically, strange as it may seem, as we dream about tornado-sized changes on the earth, it's little flaps of your and my wings in our character that are going to make all the difference. You see, your world is what can change the world. My little world is what can change the world. But if we don't rule our own worlds, we won't be able to change the world. A small butterfly, a little baby coming in a manger, 12 ordinary knuckleheads, and this is what God uses to change the world. Your world can change the world. But it's, and so it's the little things that go on in the inside that matter. If we are going to be world changers, we need to rule what's going on inside here. And so we want to look at a little man, a little brother. His name was Joseph. You know him. You know the Joseph story from Genesis. And you know the externals that happened because of how God visited him. We know that like the entire Levant, right, the whole like eastern Mediterranean area was spared famine. A whole set of nations was rescued from famine because of what God did with this man. Externally, wow, big changes on the earth because of how God dealt with this man. But what I'm interested in right now, what I feel like God wants to highlight to us today is what are the things in his internal world? What clues do we get from the Genesis story? What little flaps of the butterfly wings in his soul made the massive difference so that he could be the vessel that God wanted him to be. Amen? 
Let's look at this together. We're looking at excerpts from the, this story, Genesis 37 to 41, if you want to start getting your Bible close. We are looking at Joseph's internal world, because your world, your world can change the world. Joseph's little world changed his big world. And I'm going to pull out five things that we notice about Joseph. The first thing is that he had a dream. Can everyone say dream? He had a dream. You're the fastest, Bill. See? See, competitive guys, they, they get in charge of ministries. It's good. <laughs> Who's the quickest? Thank you. All right. Everyone say dream quicker than Bill. Okay, there you go. Okay, good job. They got you. All right. Dream. All right, this guy had a dream. You know the story. Let's get back into it. I'll read it. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, the land of Canaan. These are the generations. Jacob, Joseph, being 17 years old, small was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. In other words, he had, he had siblings from other uh, mothers. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. My brothers are not good shepherds. Joseph the Tattletale. Now Israel, Jacob, loved his Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors or, many, or big sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. Anyone quicker than Bill say dream? There you go. All right. Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheep arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. So Joseph's maybe not the wisest guy at this point, you know. His brother said to him, are you indeed going to reign over us or are you indeed going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Again, there's a little path of wisdom here. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, even his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother... And your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you. And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. He had a dream. Now clearly, Joseph's dream was very sovereignly placed in there by God. But we all are allowed to have dreams in him. And we all can pursue God. For God, what's the dream that you want to dream through me? And I know this because I read Ephesians 2.10. And it says, you and me are God's workmanship. And we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, for dreams, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I always think of my friend who has his bicep. And he has, this is maybe a little vain, but you've got to appreciate the spirit of it. He says, God's masterpiece. He has tattooed right there on his bicep. <laughs> so it's like, okay, you look at your guns and go, yes. His heart, though, was, that was, his whole heart was Ephesians 2.10. I'm God's masterpiece. I think that's actually what it says. You're God's masterpiece. You can have dreams. God is dreaming dreams through you. What did you guys do during your Christmas break? Can I tell you one of our college students did? This college student has a dream. And he has a dream that people caught in cyclical poverty in a little island off of Africa called Madagascar that they can get out and that they can have hope as they learn how to just do some basic agricultural and business stuff. It's Peter Vance. 
Peter's a senior at Gordon. I'm sad that he wasn't here for World Mandate, but that's okay. He went to Urbana, which is 16,000 people, and World Mandate was 300, so I give him a little grace. But Peter Vance, he's skiing this weekend. That's okay. <laughs> okay. So Peter Vance, this is what he did on his Christmas break. He has a little microfinance thing going on, and he was training a few guys in Madagascar that he has a relationship with on this is how you can run your business. This is how we can do this thing, and this is how you guys can start to grow your own business. That's a dream. That stuff gets me excited because he's not waiting for someone to give him permission, but he has a dream, and God's going to grow it. Your world can change the world. Do you got a dream? If you don't have one, just say, God, give me one. I love what our, the apostolic leader of our movement, Jimmy Seibert, when I was in his college group, he would say, God, dream your dreams through me. That's a great prayer to pray. Dreams. Your internal world can change the world. It starts with a dream. Second is demur. Does anyone know what demur means? Because I didn't before Thursday. And the funny thing about demur is, what I don't understand is, my son's favorite animal is this ring-tailed thing from Madagascar, and it's not a lemur. It's a lemur. But demur is spelled like lemur. And anyways, thank you, God, for English. Everyone say demur. Demar means to resist or to raise an objection. Okay? Which helped out a few of you high schoolers with your SAT. Demar means to resist or to raise an objection. When temptation comes our way, the question is how quickly do we demur? Let's look at Joseph. You know the story. His brothers have sold him into slavery. And first guy who picks him up is a guy named Potiphar. The favor of God is on Joseph. He rises up to rule Potiphar's whole household. But his wife is not of great character. She's not really noble. Potiphar, chapter, uh, verse 6 here, and this is um, chapter 39. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was a stud. He had on his bicep tattooed God's masterpiece. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my, me, my master is no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything for me except yourself because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Right? Not just against Potiphar. There's something internal there that Joseph settled. He settled that adultery is off limits. And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her, to be with her. But one day when he went to the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he got out of the house. The question for you and me is, do we demur? Do we resist? Do we raise the objection when our own flesh is leading us down a path that will ultimately lead in our own destruction? We are so saturated. You know, our culture is so oversexed. If we do not learn how to demur, to raise the objection in our souls when we start to go down this path, we do it at our own peril. But Joseph had it settled. Now, of course, we don't know in the story if Potiphar's wife is good-looking or not, which is a big deal. You know, if she was ugly, 
then we can say, then maybe this point we should just eliminate. But if she's good looking, then Joseph really has settled something in his heart, and it's awesome. He has demurred. I love what one of the, I, he shall rename nameless, he shall remain nameless. One of our techies behind the tech table there pulled out a phone, an old kind of flip phone, and he said, this is my farts moan, in reference to the fact that it was not what Bill has or I have. And he said, this is my farts moan. It's an old kind of clicky phone. Anyways, a new, new piece of vocabulary for me. I appreciated that. It brought me back 20 years, and I can be hip now. But this wasn't necessarily his case. But as I've interacted with other men over the months, I know men who have chosen farts moans because they knew that having porn at their fingertips was not good for them. And so they obey the words of Matthew 5.29. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown in hell. They demur, they resist, they raise the objection, they say, I can't do this. So what's it going to take for me to be free? I demur. Everyone say demur. There it is. Quickest, Bill. Good. All right. Your world, it matters. What's going on on the inside, it matters. Third thing, do your duty. Everyone say, do your duty. Okay. Doing a good job, no matter who's watching or where you are. All right, we see, let's read this, because we see in two situations, (laughs) actually from bad to worse, Joseph's heart is still amazingly good. It's phenomenal. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, so we're going back in the story for this point a little bit. Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, a refrain in this story, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight, attended him, made him overseer his house, put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And then we, we picked that up from the earlier point, all right? He did his duty. He had every reason. I mean, the guy had just been left for dead and sold now as a slave. His social status from favored son to the lowest had happened very quickly. And yet, I know the Bible, the text, we can just pull out God's sovereign grace on him, but I have to imagine that Joseph cooperated with that sovereign grace and saying, I'm the Lord's, and I'm going to do this unto the Lord." Now that's there. As you know, the story goes from bad to worse when because that whole interaction with Potiphar's wife, he's falsely accused and he goes to jail. Now there's the place. If I ended up in prison, falsely accused, I would wallow in my pity for a while. I'd be really mad at everybody else and I'd be sad and I'd kick my cell and say, God, where are you? Is that what Joseph does? He does his duty. He's got a good heart. Let's see what happens. The Lord was with Joseph. He showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And that's integrity, right? Wouldn't most prisoners, if they're palling up with the other prisoners, be planning escape and rebellion? 
But Joseph has got such respect among his colleagues, and he shows such deference to this prison master, he's doing his duty. He's got integrity. What about your world? What about your inside world? When you're not where you want to be, where is your integrity? When you're not doing what you want to do, when, when it's not the job you thought you were going to be doing, how does it look in your heart? Last fall, I had the privilege of attending a phenomenal Gordon fundraiser. And I have to applaud Gordon. Um, with They have a stated goal. And these, they kind of a five-year vision. And one of their goals is to reduce student debt as they leave college. And one of the products is this fundraiser. Well, one of the keynote speakers was a guy named Mike Ullman. Mike Ullman, just last July, retired for the second time as the CEO of JCPenney. He came to really help them several years ago and then was just hired on again because the interim guy was not that good. And this guy is high quality. He, he's like a Bill Frege, honestly. He is, he's led five businesses on three different continents. He's got four kids, and to his four kids, they added two more. He, he and his wife adopted two uh, uh, girls from Hong Kong with disabilities. And somewhere along the line, Mike found out what Mercy Ships were doing. You know, Mercy Ships, I think they used to be a ministry of YWAM. They might be their own ministry now. But these go to, from ports of call all around the world to give medical um, help and to share the gospel. And Mike, actually, Mike's influence on Mercy Ships has allowed them to, it wasn't just financial but because of his management and his leadership, the Mercy Ships has become way more effective and efficient as a ministry. And I'm listening to Mike, and then it wasn't apparent to me because I didn't see him get on the stage. But you know that Mike has a neuromuscular disorder such that he gets around with a Segway. In fact, he was on the board of Segway for a while. You know what I'm talking about? The Zoom Zoom? The, the better version of what the, this last Christmas with that little thing that people fall and they burn up. But the Segways are actually robust and they work. You see them at malls. Actually, have you seen them at the North Shore Mall? Which is funny because I just, I think those cops, the mall cops, uh, could benefit from walking around a little bit more. That's all. I'll just say that. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So Mike uses a Segway. Here's my thoughts. My thought, if I was in Mike's position with this neuromuscular disorder, where life is just 10 times harder for me, I think that I would have dealt with some self-pity. I would have struggled with some, just, I would pull back. But Mike Ullman has met every challenge in his life. And no matter where he's been, whether it's been trying to straighten out JCPenney or straighten out Mercy Ships or whatever, he's done it. He's done his duty. Now there's one end of the spectrum. Let's go to another end over here. I promise you, I, for those of you who went to World Mandate, I, I crafted this before going to World Mandate. But let's look at a woman who said these words. You can guess who she is. She said, it's not how much we do, but how much, we, how much love we put in the doing. It's not how much we give, but how much love we put in the giving. She said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. You see, your internal world, integrity and love, can change the world. Who said that? Mother Teresa. Little Serbian woman. As Jimmy Seibert uh, illustrated this last weekend at World Mandate. Small stature. 4'10". 5'10". 4'10". 4'10". Little. Right? I just can't imagine 4'10". That's all. 
So she's little. Change the world. Because something in her world, in her internal, she had it in her that she was going to do her duty. She's going to do what God gave her unto him with love, and God would take care of the rest. Are we there? Your world can change the world. How are you doing on that one? Okay, next one. It rhymes with demur, but it's a word you probably know. It's defer. Everyone say defer. We see Joseph being incredibly deferential to God. It's not a false humility because Joseph uses his gifts but he always recognizes the gift as from God. Listen to the story. This is Genesis 48 and 41, 16. They said to him, this is the baker and the butler. He's in jail. And they say, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Can't God do this? So please tell them to me. I love that. Those two last sentences, that to me is the illustration of humility total acknowledgement that it's god's gift but not afraid to use it don't interpretation belong to god let's go for this thing let's give it a try but he defers it's god who's given the gift let's see what god can do he's deferential now the same situation happens uh you know one of them gets a gets out and goes back to the pharaoh pharaoh's got some disturbing dreams and so joseph gets called out of prison pharaoh says not only does uh, but Pharaoh says, hey, I, can you help me here? <laughs> and Joseph says to Pharaoh, it's not in me. Because Pharaoh's asking, you know, can, you, can you interpret this for me? Joseph says, it's not in me, but God will give Joseph, uh, Pharaoh a favorable answer. Do you see it? He's not afraid to use the gift, but he gives total credit to God. Even Jesus himself in Matthew 19, 17 said to the rich young ruler, there's only one who's good. That's, that kind of messes our theological, our Trinitarian perfect theology up a little bit. Jesus is saying there's only one who's good. It's God. He was deferential to the Father, saying he's good. I really appreciated on Friday night, this, this weekend at World Mandate, Francis Chan was speaking. And again, I, I, I lifted this quote from Francis Chan before I knew what he was going to speak on. But one of Francis Chan's um, ref, uh, reflections on his church experience, you know, he's, 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 he's transitioned from being a full-time church leader to he's moved up to San Francisco, so Southern Cal to Northern Cal, and he's just kind of living missionally, uh, not running a local church day to day. But he had this reflection. He said, even in my own church, I heard the words Francis Chan more than I heard the words Holy Spirit. Ooh. And as we experienced on Friday night, Francis Chan said, I am going to share some things with you guys, but I just want to get out of the way because Jesus is the center of this whole thing. Are you and I that deferential? Can I tell you what the litmus test is? The litmus test is when you get defensive, okay? Because the issue is our pride, right? Where we're not deferential is where we're proud. And so when you feel the offense happening in your spirit, when you get defensive around someone, that's right where God is putting his thumb saying, you got a little pride there. And somehow we got to work this out where I get the glory, says God, and you figure your own soul out a little bit, okay? Because not many of us, you know, okay, it's great to hear a Francis Chan quote. Few of us will be in a position like Francis Chan. 
to be writing books and influencing the body of Christ in that level. So not many of us can relate with that experience. But the experience we can all relate to is when we get offended in our spirit. That's the moment where we ask, okay, what's the pride thing going on in me? Because somewhere in there, God's trying to rearrange things so that you become deferential to God and not trying to hold on to your own right, whatever you think that is. But this is a place where we've got to work this out in our inner world because our world can change the world. But if we don't rule our own worlds, we don't get to play as much. That's just kind of the way the kingdom's set up. God's full of grace. He's full of mercy. We're all on a journey of transformation. We have to attend to these things so that we can be fully available for what God would have us to do. All right. So we've got dream. Everyone say dream. Everyone say demur. That means resist, raise an objection, don't sin. Third is do your duty. Say that. Right? We, with a good heart, wherever we find ourselves at that moment, just do what you do unto the Lord. I believe Colossians... Um, 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing from Him that you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. Oh, my gosh. That's a big one. All right, fourth, we just said it. Everyone say defer. Okay, and the last one is deliver. We need to be ones. Yes, thank you. We had that. Deliver. Everyone say deliver. Slow. All right. <laughs> deliver. We need to participate. We need to cooperate. We need to be friends with God and how we forgive, and how we deliver others up into God and not hold on to their stuff against us in our own hearts. And of course, this is the jaw-dropper, the climax of the whole story. If you know the Joseph story, this is the one that I just go, oh my word, Joseph, what are you made of? I want to be made of the same thing, because really, if I was in your shoes, I would be a little bit different, less gracious. Again, um, to fill in a little bit of the story, famine goes on in Canaan. Joseph's brothers come to Egypt because Joseph has set up the whole thing where he's got that worked out. they got some food stores. They don't know they're dealing with him. He finally does some, some trickery things to expose their hearts. And now the moment has come where Joseph finally feels like he can reveal who he is to them. And this is how that goes down. Joseph said to his brothers, come near. Can't stand anymore. He's just been weeping in the room next to them because he's so... I don't know what he was feeling, actually. I, he was feeling a few things. Weeping so loud that everyone heard it. They came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Here comes the jaw dropper. And now, Joseph's been worked through a little bit. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Understatement. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Now few of us will have as poetic or as... Yeah, poetic, a story as Joseph. Now that we have a few thousand years perspective, it's all very nice. But what about when you're caught right in it? What about when the offense against you is the only thing you can see? What happens? Many of us know and love Sarah Hall. Sarah Hall is a Gordon student. Her dad is here, Matt. And with this permission, I just want to share a little story from their family. 
I, when some of you know Sarah's, we see Sarah's mom a lot too, Vivian, and I think a lot of you know Vivian Hall, and every time she leaves, I say, Vivian, you're a saint, and I've got many reasons for calling her that, and I would say the same thing to Matt, you're a saint. I just found out another reason, and it's this. These guys have had foster kids over the years. Um, they have loved and brought Sarah up in the fear of the Lord. Sarah just was, is tuckered out from World Mandate. That's why she's not here this morning. I wish she was. And she also knows that I'm sharing this story. But at some point along there, Matt and Vivian adopted uh, a girl. We'll call her Jen for this story. And they adopted at six years old a girl named Jen. Now this girl, and I think Sarah was a little older. She would have been eight. Is that right, Matt? Something like that. So Sarah gets a little sister. And Jen has just come from real trauma and real abusive background. So as Matt and Viv love Jen as part of their family, it is a labor for them because Jen is so rebellious. She is so nasty. She's so not submitted to their authority year after year after year. She steals from them. She is just verbally, you know, she just, from the six years of crap that came at her, now it's all coming out at her new parents. Heartbreak. But, you know, Vivian and Matt are committed to loving this girl though all she does is respond with venom at them. Jen is also really good looking. So she turns 13 and 14. She finds that she can get attention. And she starts to have habits of running away from home and spending night with men way older than her. And of course, this is just, you can imagine, poor Matt's heart torn up to pieces watching this girl just invite more pain into her life. Well, so Jen gets the idea, I want to do this. I want to get out of here. Viv and Matt, too strict. Get me out of here. And so what she does is she goes to DCF. Now, mind you, Jen is officially adopted by this family. She is, belongs to this family. Well, she, or sorry, she goes to her school counselor and says, at home they abuse me. And she just starts to unload all these false accusations so that Matt and Vivian get the call that day, Jen is not coming home to you. She's in the custody of the state right now. And what proceeds is a long, protracted legal battle where now all the guns of the state are pointed at Matt and Vivian, even though they had been, they had been trainers of trainers of foster kids in the states. They had been recognized with a big celebration with big, big wigs in the state of Connecticut Marriott Hotel, the whole works, they've been recognized as uh, some of the best foster and adoptive parents the state had, training others, actually training the trainers of them. And yet, all of this happened. Accusation. And so, <clears throat> DCF, the state said, okay, Matt and Vivian, if you want your child back, here's what you got to do, you know. Two pages of weekly visits and get training this and blah, 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 all this stuff. And you know what Matt and Vivian did? They called the girl's bluff. They said, we don't want her back. Eight years of this and now this? They called her bluff. Said, she can remain a ward of the state. Can you blame him? <clears throat> Well, Jen's life continues to go from bad to worse. Drugs, homelessness, 
promiscuity. And Jen right now is in jail. At Thanksgiving, Matt gets a letter. He sees it as from her. And it takes him six weeks to decide if he wants to open this thing. Finally, he opens it. And what he reads is the most genuine, the most authentic letter of repentance he could have ever imagined. Though he doesn't see Jen, he reads on those pages. And he's read many pages of her journals and diaries before. In fact, some of those journals and diaries that actually implicated her in her foolishness and her trickery towards them, he reads repentance. You can imagine going through Matt's mind as eight years of memories of dealing with the rebellion and the frustration of her not responding to their love. But then Matt remembers Jesus died on the cross for me. Matt remembers Jesus has dealt with all my filth and all my rebellion. And so after a week, Matt was able to say, you're my daughter in his heart. He, he could write a letter back saying, we love you. You're our daughter. Come home. You know, when, you, when this thing's done, you come home. You're my daughter. I love you. You see, Matt and Viv had something worked through in their hearts. They knew that when this woman, Jen, needed a deliverer, when this woman, Jen, had really met with Jesus in jail, they knew that they had no other choice but to partner with Jesus in his forgiveness of her. Wow. I honor Matt. I honor Vivian. I honor Sarah Hall. Because, and that's just one. <laughs> they have a few other foster and adoptive kids. And they've worked through, they've walked through some of these things with several of these girls and one boy. They're from a different planet. They're from planet Jesus, you know? Matt, we honor you. And thanks for letting us share that story. Because it's where it cuts deep when you're really offended that it matters, that you learn to be a part and parcel of Jesus' deliverance. You see, because your world can change the world. You, one little flap of your forgiveness wing, is what can set someone else free. And as Jen gets set free, can you imagine the fire that she's going to tear it up with? I mean, she's already tearing up in jail in terms of she and some of the prisoners there, they're getting down with Jesus, you know? They are hanging out with Jesus. There's a little revival going on in some jail in, in Connecticut. Is that right? So, what's that? Yes, okay, thank you. I just know if I get Somebody's in the right state. Connecticut, the state of, come on, gotcha. So, your little butterfly forgiveness changes the world. Your world can change the world, but you can't change the world until you learn to rule your own. It's the journey God has us all on. And as the band comes up right now, I want you, with the Holy Spirit, to examine these five places of your inner world that we have looked at through the Joseph story. Is it the dream? Do you need a dream? Are you just checking some boxes in life? Man, it's too short and the need is so, is so great. Please don't do that. Ask God for the godly dream. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe it's demur. Maybe you need to raise more objections. Maybe you're going down pathways too quickly that you don't need to go down and that keeps you from the power of God.
We need to raise that demur, I don't know, faculty inside of you more. You say, Jesus, help me to do that. Maybe you're filled with bitterness and blah at your current situation and work and life. I don't know. And you need a grace to encounter God right where you're at so you get His favor. Maybe you need to be deferential in the sense of acknowledging God and resisting your own pride. Or finally, maybe there is a place of unforgiveness that God wants to deal with today. God wants us to participate in His big dreams. He's got to deal with our world as we go. It's not perfection, but it's a journey. And He wants you on that journey of your little world being changed so that we can change the world. Amen? All right, you guys stand up. Let's respond to God. Please don't let your heart be hardened. I'm saying that to myself. Neil, don't let your heart be hardened right now because there's some of these Ds I need to work on, no doubt. 